Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we'll conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If analysts require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Advances in Treating Chemotherapy-Induced Nausea and Vomiting. This is a very important program and one that I know affects many of you on the call today. And um, we have assembled today a really uh, extensive, a really multidisciplinary team of experts to address this topic. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. We have on the call today over 594 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we have international participants from Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, and Vietnam. So you really come from all over the world. And it's a really credit to all of you that you're choosing to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's program was supported by Tesaro, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. As I mentioned before, we have wonderful speakers today, and they do represent a multidisciplinary team of experts. And I'm going to start by introducing our first speaker, Dr. Richard Grawa. Dr. Grawa is professor of medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And Dr. Grawa is a medical oncologist, and he's going to address, he's going to really put the whole program in a context and really talk about review and causes of chemotherapy side effects and advances in the treatment of nausea and vomiting. And will also going to I'm going to put this in a supportive care context. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Grawa. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn, and welcome to all. It's a great pleasure to participate in this program with all of you and with my colleagues from many different medical centers. Our topic today is supportive care in cancer with an emphasis on the prevention of nausea and vomiting associated with cancer chemotherapy. I'd like to start by quoting Dr. Harold Varmus, the Nobel laureate cancer researcher and immediate past director of the U.S. National Cancer Institute. During a major television interview, Dr. Varmus said, cancer patients are living longer and better lives thanks to better symptom control, more effective therapies, and a deeper understanding of cancer. Dr. Varmus surely got it right. He used the term symptom control, and many of us would use the term supportive care, but we're referring to the same concept. The Multinational Association for Supportive Care in Cancer defines this term to mean all aspects of cancer care other than the actual anti-cancer treatment itself. This includes prevention of side effects of treatment, relief of symptoms from the cancer, psychological and social issues, as well as many other care and rehabilitation concerns. Today we'll talk about a variety of such issues, including prevention of nausea and vomiting, as I mentioned before, maintaining adequate nutrition, managing mouth sores and dental issues, controlling gastrointestinal problems, dealing with fatigue and hair loss, as well as several practical concerns common to everyone receiving anti-cancer treatment and of major importance to their caregivers. Recently, we surveyed over 3,000 patients and caregivers to find out which topics patients and families feel are the most important to learn about. These individuals voiced that learning about supportive care was just as important as learning about the cancer treatments themselves, with 95% of participants scoring both of these topics, supportive care and cancer treatment, as highly important 
Again, Dr. Varmus got it right. Our first topic for today is a discussion on the control of nausea and vomiting. Patients and caregivers, as well as all on your treatment team, your nurses, doctors, pharmacists, and many others, agree that preventing nausea and vomiting is vital in patients and people receiving cancer chemotherapy. The action of vomiting is a very protective reflex that we all have, and all of us have experienced nausea and vomiting and know how miserable it makes us feel. As humans, typically foreign substances are introduced through the mouth, of course, by eating, and the body has ways of sensing risky items. It does so in the gut, in the bloodstream, and even in receptors in the brain. The last line of our natural defense is to get rid of perceived unpleasant ingested food and substances by vomiting. Unfortunately, these protective mechanisms are the same even if we have ingested medicines such as chemotherapy or have taken these medicines by mouth. And the body handles all of this in the same way as if we were eating some bad food. So the strategy in preventing nausea and vomiting is to switch off temporarily the natural sensors in the body that detect such substances. Just as Dr. Varma said, a deeper understanding of this problem has allowed us to be much more effective in stopping nausea and vomiting, or emesis, if I may use that term of emesis, which here means nausea or vomiting, which is why drugs that prevent emesis or nausea and vomiting are called anti-emetics. Anti-emetic prevention is truly targeted in personal care. It fits the definition of precision medicine. We can identify an individual person's risk. We understand the mechanisms which regulate nausea and vomiting. And we have very tolerable and easy to administer medicines that address these problems. Not all chemotherapy drugs cause nausea and vomiting. So when we assess an individual's risk, the first factor is what chemotherapy is being given. Most chemotherapy drugs will fit into one of four or five well-defined categories. These categories vary from only minimal risk all the way to a very high risk of nausea or vomiting. Based on this risk, maybe no antiemetic agents are given, or one, or two, or even three. Since we know the risk, antiemetics are given as preventive measures rather than waiting for the nausea and vomiting to occur. Now, there are other factors, risk factors as well, which can help in fine-tuning the antiemetic choices. These include the person's age and gender. For reasons that are not so well understood, it's more difficult to prevent nausea or vomiting in younger people and in women. It has also been shown that there are different emesis problems. They include acute nausea and vomiting, which can occur in the first several hours following the chemotherapy, or delayed emesis, which can begin on the, day, uh, on the days after chemotherapy, and which can be a problem then for several days. And there's also conditioned or anticipatory nausea and vomiting, which can occur on future chemotherapy cycles if the emesis is not well controlled previously. So this is a strong reason for prevention for using the best, most appropriate anti-nausea drugs uh, with the first treatment and each one thereafter. We don't want to over-treat, and we surely don't want to under-treat. 
Based on this information, if chemotherapy shows sufficient risk of emesis for an individual, we would give antiemetic agents as preventatives for acute emesis the day of chemotherapy. For many chemotherapy agents, additional antiemetic medicines may be prescribed to start the day after the day of chemotherapy to prevent delayed emesis. This is why it is so vital that a person and caregiver understand clearly how these drugs are to be given and then to take them just as prescribed, not to wait for problems to begin. All members of your treatment team are responsible for clearly indicating this, but if you're in any doubt, please ask. Feel free to be proactive on this with your doctors and nurses. You should be comfortable in asking, what medicines to combat nausea and vomiting will I be given and when do I take them? You should be assured that you're receiving the best antimetic medicines possible given the highly unpleasant nature of nausea and vomiting, its effects on quality of life, and on many aspects of your physical and uh, psychological functioning. There are three major categories of antiemetic agents that are commonly used. These include corticosteroids or cortisone-like medicines, such as dexamethasone, that are often given for one or for a few days. Serotonin antagonists or cetrons and, uh, are another major category, and these include drugs like ondansetron, also called Zofran, granisetron, also called chytral, or palinositron, also called aloxy. There's a new class, relatively new class, which I'll call NK or neurokinin receptor antagonists, NK drugs, such as aprepitant or fosaprepitant, and these are amend, NEPA, which is actually a combination of an NK agent, natupitant plus palinositron, and this combination capsule is called the Kinzia. And the newest agent in this category is called rolapitant, a pill, that is also called Varubi. Sometimes patients ask about cannabinoids, you know, marijuana or THC, dronabinol, marinol, which is often in the news. Cannabinoids do indeed have some antiemetic effects, but they're very minor compared with the types of drugs that I mentioned above, the corticosteroids, the serotonin antagonists, or cetrons, and the NK1 agents. Cannabinoids should never be used instead of the highly active agents, and it's not clear that they add to the effects of the major agents. Freely available major guidelines are available for your treatment team and for you to see on the Internet to help assure that the best regimens are given. Again, the risk of emesis from the chemotherapy guides in the selection of how many of these medicines one should receive. So typically, if a person's receiving drugs of high risk, such as cisplatin or a combination of adriamycin, doxorubicin, and cyclophosphamide, agents from all three of these classes would be given. A few decades ago, 100% of patients receiving these chemotherapy drugs would vomit. Now 90-plus percent would be free of acute vomiting and at least 70% of delayed. Nausea, the feeling that one might vomit, is a bit harder to prevent, but that too has been markedly better controlled. Now some people say, hey, if I don't have nausea or vomiting, is the, is the chemotherapy working? There's no connection here. You can have lots of gain and no pain. Side effects are most commonly minor headache or constipation, which can be controlled with simple agents. And the side effects of corticosteroids are ones that can be discussed with your, your doctor or nurse. The newer NK1 drugs, such as fosaprepitant and NEPA, 
and relapitant only need to be given right before the chemotherapy, that's it, and then have their lasting effect for several days. So this is a major convenience factor that makes it easier to take these drugs the right way. Rolapitant may have fewer interactions with other drugs that you may be taking. NEPA combines two of the agents into one capsule taken only once, and fosaprepitant is given intravenously. It's interesting that these drugs work as well orally as by mouth when they're available uh, uh, orally or by mouth as they do IV when they're available in different forms. These drugs are very good, but they're not perfect for everyone. They've enabled many, many more people to be treated comfortably and safely as outpatients, which is a great benefit. And most of all, they help maintain quality of life has been as has been clearly shown in well-conducted trials. Please be very familiar with your anti-medic agents and the proper schedule for taking these drugs. Communicating with your treatment team on this is key. While great progress has been made in this area, much research is continuing to reduce the risk of nausea and vomiting, hopefully soon, with chemotherapy to zero for all patients at all times. I want to thank you for your attention. I know we'll have time for questions later. And now I'll turn the program back to Carolyn Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grau. That was really excellent, very informative, and lots of wonderful information. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is founding director of Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, Accreditation Surveyor, American College of Surgeons, Commission on Cancer. And Dr. Fleischman is going to address practical tips to deal with fatigue, diarrhea, and constipation, and quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messler. Uh, when we think about uh, being tired or fatigue or diarrhea or constipation, these are part of our everyday lives um, before cancer, after cancer, um, and, and during cancer treatment. And many of us will um, think about the kinds of things we can do that are relatively simple, and they often involve going to the pharmacy and picking up some over-the-counter remedies that are sold without a prescription that we've taken many times before that we've given to members of our family. And generally, these are very effective. But during uh, cancer treatment and for a while after cancer treatment, I, I would hope that people don't think of this as such a simple task and they turn back to their treatment team because these symptoms, uh, although very common um, in, in everyday life outside of cancer, need special attention during, um, during cancer treatment and after cancer treatment. And one of the differences is that um, during and after cancer treatment, it's the oncology treatment team's um, uh, job or your primary care doctor if it's far after cancer treatment to find the cause. Uh, that these somewhat seemingly simple symptoms can be um, part of an underlying problem that needs attention more than just an over-the-counter remedy. So I'll just quickly go through the three that uh, are part of my assignment today, fatigue, diarrhea, and constipation. Um, we talk about fatigue uh, in everyday life as well, but fatigue during cancer can be extraordinarily profound. It may not be, and it varies from person to person, different types of cancer, different types of treatment, and at different points of life. But it could be from the cancer itself. It could be from the chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or other treatments for cancer. 
It could be concerned um, with anemia, which is the lack of red blood cells or hemoglobin in the red blood cells that carry oxygen around the body. It may be the result of thyroid problems. It may be the beginning of a slowdown of uh, uh, liver um, or kidney function, maybe a problem with breathing that is just starting to develop. Maybe the result of elevated calcium levels if the cancer of the chemotherapy or radiation therapy has affected the bones. And it can be the result of hormonal changes. I'm, I'm picking just the major ones, but there are, believe it or not, are a number of other causes. So the first job of the cancer treatment team or your primary care provider is to really figure out if any of these are involved in the development of the fatigue. The second would be then to treat the symptoms um, using some sort of standard sorts of interventions that we've been using for years. When it comes to fatigue, it may be counterintuitive to think that activity um, helps reduce fatigue, but it does. <laughs> it surprisingly does. And a combination of proper nutrition, um, activity or exercise, as many people don't like to call it, um, and restorative or, or re sleep or restorative rest are, are really the three things that actually help relieve fatigue after we've been through the process of making sure that it's not related to one of the other uh, body systems as described. So um, we're going to hear more later in this call about nutrition and hydration. Um, we have done a number of calls about the importance of activity or exercise during treatment uh, and after treatment. Um, so um, we don't have time to go into details about that today, but it, just keep in mind that activity can help not hurt. And the kind of logical thing to do would be just to hang, hang back and not do much, but most times with fatigue it really means more activity, better nutrition, and better rest. When it comes to diarrhea, uh, I think the similar idea is in mind that diarrhea may be just an everyday problem, but during cancer treatment, it could be the result of certain types of cancer. Certain types of cancer produce proteins that actually can cause diarrhea, um, so it's hard to generalize about all cancers, but certain cancers can do that. Um, it could be the result of chemotherapy, radiation therapy, all the medicines that are given with those uh, treatments. So again, the important, it's important for the treatment team or the primary care provider in, in, during the survivorship period is to um, really sort all this out first, as well as make sure that the diarrhea isn't so severe that your electrolytes, the salts that normally occur in your body, are not um, either too high or too low, mostly too low, but it, again, it, it, it varies. Um, and uh, that would be the very, very first thing that needs to be done. Once that's taken care of, there are a number of uh, interventions that can actually help slow the bowels. Um, some of them are done through the, the nerves that control the rate that the bowels pump. Uh, because that happens without us thinking about it. It's automatic. And some of the interventions are of the result of eating more absorptive foods that actually will absorb some of the extra liquids. So although we're going to be speaking a little bit more, in more detail about nutrition and hydration in general, we often think of using some constipating foods such as bananas, rice, apples, or uh, toast, which actually can help um, absorb some of the extra liquid, 
or some over-the-counter remedies. Uh, the brands vary from country to country, but the generic names tend to stay the same around the world, so something like loperamide or a fiber supplement with a lot less of the liquid than it says to use on the label can actually help absorb some of the liquid. And again, for constipation, it's the same, uh, same approach where we think about um, which of the medicines that we're, we're using during or after cancer treatment can actually be causing constipation. Um, often it's a side effect of a medicine, and it's not just the chemotherapy drug itself, but it could be a variety of drugs, let's say pain medicine, that can be quite constipating um, when used uh, during or after cancer treatment. And uh, there is, again, an important role for diet and exercise and making sure that your bowels move um, on time and regularly. Um, and it, it could be related to the chemotherapy, or it's unusual that constipation is related to radiation therapy. But again, this is something for your treatment team, your primary care provider, to um, decide with you and go through the, the long list of things that need to be addressed. Um, with constipation, we, we, if we know that you're taking uh, medications that are constipating. We like to think of preventing constipation, and preventing constipation can be done with stool softeners and um, fiber laxatives and fluids. Um, activity can help um, reduce the burden of constipation because it encourages the, the stool to move through the system. That activity, um, fiber, and, and um, hydration is really important. After that, we like to think of using the least problematic or the easiest ones to use first. So after stool softeners, things that are um, somewhat easy to procure. Many people still like prunes, and the active um, ingredients in prunes can be found in a number of over-the-counter laxatives, like senna. Sometimes milk of magnesia, again, careful during chemotherapy and radiation therapy. That's something you need to address with your team. Um, something called cascara. Uh, so the next level up the constipation treatment ladder would be something like um, bisacodyl suppositories or tablets. Suppositories work fast. The tablets take a few more hours. There are a whole variety of laxatives that help change the salt water balance or help provide extra sort of chemical weight to the fluids in the colon so that you can have a natural bowel movement, um, and th those can be used. We try not to encourage the use of enemas during chemotherapy, radiation therapy, because it introduces something in the body that can uh, cause infection or the pressure can actually cause some bleeding if platelet counts are low as a result of chemotherapy or radiation therapy. That's often not the best time to use an enema. And for unusual circumstances, we have even gone into some of the things that are used in, to prepare somebody for a colonoscopy in extremely smaller doses. But these are all things that can be done. So the message here and the quality of life message is that for these three symptoms, beyond the nausea and vomiting that Dr. Grala described, if fatigue, diarrhea, and constipation are part of the um, things that are complicating your quality of life, please speak up to your treatment team. Let them go through their list of things to see um, what's involved, if this is um, something that needs more medical attention, or you can start using either over-the-counter or prescription 
level medicines to help uh, reduce your symptoms and improve your quality of life. I'll stop there. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really excellent and very comprehensive, and I know there'll be questions for you as well. Thank you. And our, our next speaker is Dr. Doug Peterson. Dr. Peterson um, is going to address um, Dr. Peterson is um, Professor of Oral Medicine, Department of Oral Health and Diagnostic Sciences, School of Dental Medicine, Chief Program in Head and Neck Cancer and Oral Oncology, May Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. And Dr. Peterson is going to address guidelines for dental care during chemotherapy and managing mouth sores and dry mouth. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Peterson. Thank you, Carolyn. It's uh, my privilege, really, to participate in today's important discussion. And uh, to follow the lead of my, my expert colleagues, Dr. Grala with nausea and vomiting and, and supportive care in general, and uh, Dr. Fleischman with fatigue, diarrhea, and constipation, I'd, I'd like to follow that theme and talk about some of the oral care and dental care issues in the chemotherapy patient. And just as we've heard with some of the other treatment side effects in chemotherapy uh, patients today, uh, I'd like to emphasize that not all chemotherapy causes the same types of mouth problems across cancer patients. That's very important to realize. It's really chemotherapy specific in many ways. And secondly, there can be very effective ways to prevent or at least minimize mouth problems, including mouth sores and dry mouth, uh, during the cancer treatment experience. And I'd like to discuss this over the next few minutes. The, the effects of chemotherapy in the amount, on the mouth itself typically begin in the first few days after the chemotherapy starts. And those effects of chemotherapy on the mouth may last for two to three weeks after the chemotherapy ends. And so given the complexity and the timing of some of the mouth complication, it becomes very important to have comprehensive management um, throughout your, your cancer treatment experience. And a, a dental checkup and medically necessary dental treatment before the chemotherapy begins very much helps us set the stage for, for comprehensive preventive approaches. And, and so as we've heard from Drs. Grala and, uh, and Fleischman, I'd like to also emphasize how important the communication is among the dentist, the oncologist, and putting the patient and the caregivers right in the center of that discussion. If you have questions and if you have concerns, whether it's about mouth care or any other aspect of your cancer treatment, please ask. We're here to help. Now, as far as dental care before and during chemotherapy, uh, I have to say as a, as a dental provider, I'll advocate for excellent oral health, uh, teeth and gums and the lining tissue. That's, that's always an important goal uh, for, for patients. And the role of periodic dental examinations and cleanings is quite important in this regard. So just the idea of working to achieve optimal oral health, particularly before chemotherapy begins, is very important. Now, having said this, not all dental disease, not all gum disease necessarily needs to be treated before the chemotherapy begins. For, for example, if, if uh, your, your oncology team refers you to the dental team and we find a very minor dental cavity or a cosmetic issue that we could address over time, those kinds of problems aren't necessarily important relative to your chemotherapy. We can, we can certainly address them, but we can wait until after your chemotherapy ends before doing so. It's medically safe to do that. 
However, if there are deep cavities, which are actually infections, or severe gum disease, which is also a very complex infection, actually, those kinds of conditions, again, depending on the type of chemotherapy that are, is planned, should be addressed and at least stabilized, um, if not eliminated, before the chemotherapy begins. And, and so it's really assessing, uh, evaluating the mouth condition, prioritizing the severity of any gum disease, dental disease, or other problems, and then working with your healthcare team to uh, implement the medically necessary treatments. Now, as far as managing mouth sores and, and dry mouth, just a few words on, on that. Certain types of chemotherapy can cause mouth sores, uh, the so-called mucositis. In this case, the soreness starts a few days after the chemotherapy begins and, and heals a few days after the chemotherapy ends. And the good news is there are a number of products ranging from very simple, non-medicated mouth rinses such as water and salt solutions uh, to help keep the mouth moist and clean to pain medications to help the patient through the mucositis experience, to medicines that fight infection, which can be a complication of the mouth sores. So there are some very, very good time-tested, evidence-based approaches to minimizing uh, the experience with mucositis caused by the chemotherapy. However, none of these uh, approaches are specifically designed to prevent the mouth sores from developing. And so uh, those of us who work in this field are working to develop new ways to predict risk of mucositis and new ways to treat mucositis uh, directed at the underlying causes of the condition. There is, a, there is a product, it's available for clinical use, called Palifermin. It's been approved by uh, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States and in Europe as well, related to preventing or at least reducing the severity of mouth sores in patients with hematologic malignancies and patients who are receiving chemotherapy for those cancers. And so there are uh, drugs in development. There is one drug, Palifermin, that is available for certain patients with certain types of cancer. As far as dry mouth is concerned, uh, dry mouth can cause problems in tasting, chewing, speaking, swallowing, and it can also over time increase the risk of infection, including dental cavities. However, the good news here is that chemotherapy doesn't actually directly cause the dryness, and in, in fact, it's more the uh, medications that may be used to control the nausea and vomiting that Dr. Grala talked about that actually can cause some of the mouth dryness as well. So while the mouth dryness is occurring, there are some very simple approaches that we can advocate, including frequent sips of water or sugarless, important to emphasize sugarless drinks each, each day, just keeping the mouth moist avoiding drinks with caffeine, such as coffee or tea, since caffeine can dry the mouth, and not using tobacco and alcohol, since these can also dry out the mouth. Now, in the interest of time, as I conclude, I'm going to defer to Ms. Beard and one of our subsequent speakers today for additional information regarding diet and nutrition. And so to summarize, um, I'd like to emphasize that not all cancer patients develop mouth complications, in, including mouth sores or dry mouth, because of the chemotherapy, and therefore having that discussion with your oncology team before that chemotherapy starts is absolutely essential. 
Many of the mouth problems associated with chemotherapy can be prevented, and there are excellent resources to patients and families and the cancer care team to guide the decision-making and the treatments uh, related to preventing and treating mouth complications. And these resources uh, can be found in excellent uh, websites and related materials such as the cancer care program. And so this kind of collaboration, working with the cancer team, asking your questions, making sure you have clarity in the approach that's being taken can really position the patient for very positive outcomes for many years long after the cancer treatment ends. So I'd like to thank Cancer Care and my colleagues for this opportunity, and I'll turn the program back to Carolyn. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson. That was really, um, really very excellent and comprehensive, and thank you so much. And it's a topic that we really want to highlight very much on these programs because it's so important for people to be aware of this, um, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Barbara Given, um, and Dr. Dr. Given is um, a PhD in nursing. She's an oncology nurse, and she's a professor. She's university distinguished professor, director of a PhD program, College of Nursing, Michigan State University. Michigan State university. Um, and Dr. Given is going to address adherence or following your treatment plan and how caregivers may help, and refilling prescriptions on weekends, special occasions, travel, and holidays, all of which are very important in terms of your maintaining your quality of life and following what you need to do to maintain your um, handling your uh, nausea and vomiting. So it's my pleasure now to share this program with Dr. Given. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Welcome, everybody, who is listening today. You've already heard uh, a lot about the value of team and the value of working together. My focus is going to be a bit more on the patient's role and the family member role as uh, dealing with nausea and vomiting. Uh, in the uh, complexity of cancer care, you've heard a lot again today about that, but remembering now so much of the cancer care is really on an outpatient basis which means that the patient and the family member are really involved in managing a lot of it on their own. And this is surely true with nausea and vomiting. We have the IV chemotherapy, which we heard about. There are now many, many oral drugs that are given for uh, therapy, chemotherapy as well. Some of our patients are getting both intravenous and oral therapy. And then remember that many of us who are older who get cancer really have other comorbid conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, heart disease, and a variety of other things. So given all of those kinds of things, then it's up to the patient and the family to worry about nausea and vomiting when it is a potential occurring with the medications that they, uh, uh, you get for treatment. So I think it's important uh, to have uh, heard the very first presentation today that talked about the importance of prevention. And again, this makes the whole idea of nausea and vomiting a bit different than uh, the other things that we've talked about because we're talking about before something actually occurs. But it is so important that if you are taking drugs for prevention of nausea and vomiting that you carefully follow the recommendations and don't say, well, I'm already taking too many meds, I want to avoid this, or I'll wait to see if I really need it. If you're getting the medication because you're to prevent nausea and vomiting, it is essential that the patient know to take it and the family member remind them to take it. So it is really important to follow the orders, uh, that, uh, the recommendations that have been made. 
<clears throat> so dealing with the um, nausea and vomiting, the adherence to the medication is important. You heard also there's a variety of nausea and vomiting that occurs, uh, the acute, the delayed, the anticipatory or conditional. Uh, sometimes there's even breakthrough if the patients do take medication, so it's all important. It's important to follow the directions carefully to prevent it in the first place, and then if you are uh, responsible to take the medication for several days after uh, when nausea and vomiting has the potential, it is important to do so. It is important then for the family members to help remember that this occurs. So it is important that uh, patients and family members talk about nausea and vomiting and that they actually mention when it is occurring or actually check on that. And it's important that the family member ask about it and not be afraid. Um, the patient should not be afraid to talk about it when it occurs because, again, we're trying to control it so you can continue on in therapy. And that's an issue if you really have too much nausea and vomiting because it isn't controlled. Sometimes treatment could be delayed or interrupted and you do not want that. It is important to take plenty of fluids during the time um, that you are getting uh, therapy and especially with nausea and vomiting, it is important to avoid caffeine, and uh, it is important to generally try dry foods, cereal, toast, crackers. I'm sure we'll hear more la later on this. We have a lot of patients who like the ginger drops or lemon drops to take along with this. Uh, we have a number of patients who talk about the importance of family members not cooking for themselves because of the unpleasant smell. So again, a role for the family member in this. For a family member, I think it's important to check on um, making sure that, that there's ample fluids and that there is no weight loss and you're watching the weight a bit so that there isn't dehydration that occurs. It is important for both the patient and the family member that you know what side effects to report, side effects from both the medication that you're taking, and you've heard about some of them today, but side effects from the chemo that may interfere with the ingestion of the foods that you really need to uh, move on. Once uh, nausea and vomiting starts, it's harder to control than if you can actually prevent it, so it's very important. And as we talked about the adherence piece, it's very different than taking a med every day for high blood pressure or two meds a day for, for uh, heart disease or something. This is something that you take on at a sporadic basis, often around the period of time of treatment, pre-chemo or after chemo. And I think it's also important with nausea and vomiting not to eat your favorite food because then if you have a bad taste for it because of the nausea and vomiting today, it may turn you away from those foods uh, forever. So it's important uh, to not uh, ingest your favorite foods other than if you feel like you really want it and you want it and that's the only thing you can eat sometimes like uh, favorite foods work, but you have to be cautious about that. Uh, relaxation uh, and meditation sometimes supplements taking medications for nausea and vomiting, and we have a lot of patients now who are liking uh, meditation. So the weekends, vacations, holidays, special occasions, I think that, again, prevention is the big thing. Again, family members have to help with this. So I think before you go on vacation, before you go away from the weekend, be sure and count the number of medications that you have, and be sure you have enough to cover the weekend, the holiday, or the vacation. 
Um, make sure that if you're traveling by air, as you hear as they announce these days, uh, don't pack your medications in your luggage. Take it with you, uh, either in your carry-on or your purse if you're a female, because you don't want to get your have your medication stuck or when you m miss planes or lose luggage or whatever. There's some very nice records out called My Medication Record, including the FDA that has one. And I, I recommend getting a form like this and filling out what the medication is, what the dose, how much you were to take, when you were to take it, the name of the physician who ordered it, uh, your local pharmacy, and phone numbers for both of those things. Uh, we recommend that you take, make four copies of that, one copy that you carry in your wallet or purse, one that you give to your family member or a travel companion, Keep one at home uh, close to a phone so that if you lose everything else, you can have someone go into your house who might have a key and read it to you. Uh, but always have plenty of copies of what you need for your medication for nausea, vomiting, or other meds as well. Uh, our patients are finding that urgent cares or fast cares or minute clinics are good places to take those if you get in a pinch so that if you go in and have all that information, um, minute clinics in this community will call local doctors or pharmacies to try and verify that these medications are real and then actually fill them, maybe just a few days' worth of medications to give them. Or if you have a blank uh, script that you carry an extra one uh, that some doctors write for, for you, uh, a minute clinics and urgent cares will verify those as well or take them into pharmacies. Very often pharmacies will help you with this too, but the current urgent cares and fast clinics are ones that uh, are doing a really good job. So the important thing I think is to think ahead, plan ahead, uh, know and have records of everything with you so that you don't uh, end up in a crisis. Uh, but that you can enjoy your holiday, your vacation, your weekends, the special occasions, and still um, be able to have the medications that you need to get through that and not have to worry about nausea and vomiting. So those are some of the things that um, I find that work well with our patients and our family members, and I'll turn it over as well. Thank you very much. I'll Thank you so much, Dr. Giffen. That was really, really excellent and, and really giving people lots of tips um, in terms of when they travel and just how to get on with the quality of your life um, and all the kinds of things in terms of your suitcase to have, be sure you, you, you carry that, all those things that you need, your medications with you. These are very important tips. People often forget these things and so, um, so much more. So thank you so much. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next uh, speaker, um, is Diana Bairden, and Ms. Bairden is Supervisor of Clinical Nutrition. She's a dietitian at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Ms. Bairden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Bairden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation um, addressing nutritional concerns during chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. My goal is to discuss tips for um, managing some of these side effects by modifying your diet or um, the utensils you use um, to eat with. And um, one of the biggest goals when you're going through chemotherapy, radiation, post-surgery, but um, cancer treatment is maintaining your nutritional status. 
and doing that by um, consuming um, enough calories, enough protein in your diet is essential. There are a lot of ways to do that, and so modifying that throughout your care might be something your team um, directs you towards. Um, we've said it a lot this presentation, but we can't say it enough. Um, communication with your healthcare team is absolutely essential. And um, the reason why that's so important is we don't know everything that you're experiencing even though some of the, the expectations might be there, the, the level of severity, um, the onset, those sorts of things, sometimes are very individual. And so don't assume that, um, that we know you need to communicate with us. And each one of your healthcare team members play a, a vital role in helping you through this um, time. But when we look at diet and um, the role of the dietitian, what you want to think about is, you know, us as a, a tool to help you eat better, to tolerate your diet better. The medications are there. Sometimes the medications, like we've heard today, um, come with some of their own side effects. And so um, communicating those can also um, affect how we um, address your diet in, in, in conjunction to with the, the current side effects you might be having from the treatment itself. But, you know, nausea, vomiting, uh, decrease in appetite, taste changes, um, diarrhea, constipation, fatigue, um, and even weight changes are all common and can be experienced at any point during um, your treatment based on what your treatment is. And so um, I'm going to provide a few tips very general, um, but hopefully will at least um, make you aware of how a dietitian can be helpful during your um, treatment and helping with your side effects. So as just to start with, the nausea and vomiting or poor appetite, sometimes um, this is a result. Um, maybe your sense of smell is um, heightened. Um, maybe you're constipated. There's some bloating or indigestion, things that may um, result in nausea and vomiting or poor appetite. But medications um, that you're given with the, as far as chemotherapy go, um, are known. They know, as we've heard today, um, they give specific medications at different times throughout your um, medication administration, and um, knowing that there will be some specific side effects during those times, but you may, like I said, have some things along the way as a result of those medications. So in order to address um, nausea and vomiting and poor appetite, some things you can try um, outside of taking your medication as directed, is focusing on small, frequent meals. Um, oftentimes, um, we want to sit down and eat our regular-sized meal, and we start to feel overwhelmed and uncomfortable. And so um, breaking that up into maybe two or even three meals sometimes um, will help the tolerance and will also help your success in getting in the calories and protein that you need. There um are also some options on focusing on high-calorie um, and high-protein foods, and these can be your actual foods. They don't have to be a processed food or a manufactured product. Um, and so talking with your dietitian on what's an appropriate option for you um, can have you eating the foods that um, you do like and um, will tolerate. So hopefully that will um, improve quality of life for you also.
Um, eliminating stress at mealtimes um, sounds like a pretty um, common thing um, that we try and do, but whenever you're going under cancer care, Sometimes you're running, you know, from one appointment to another. You're having to travel a distance. And whether you may be aware of it or not, you might be really stressed at different times. And that can affect, you know, your, you know, your digestion. It can affect um, your interest in eating and how much you do eat. We heard a little bit earlier about exercising and how it can impact um, and benefit with fatigue. Um, but it also can help with stimulating your appetite. And it doesn't have to be an exercise routine. This is just getting up and walking and um, and moving around the house, walking around the block. Oftentimes um, when we are bombarded with so many different things in our lives that change through um, or as a result of cancer care, um, we just want to rest. There's a lot of sleep that happens, and we want you to do that, but we also want you to move around when you feel like you can do um, that also. Um, it has a lot of phenomenal benefits um, that we're, we're learning more and more about. Um, I'm going to move on to another um, possible side effect um, that patients um, may experience, and that's taste changes. Um, this can happen for a number of different reasons, but one way that we can manage it with diet is um, recognizing what changes you're experiencing. Sometimes you might have a heightened sense of a, a sense of a flavor. Um, maybe foods are tasting um, very salty or very sweet. Um, sometimes you have a metal taste in your mouth. And so, working with a dietitian, it may be um, some directions such as. Um, you know, making sure to cleanse your mouth um, with a baking soda and water solution, um, keeping good dental hygiene like we heard earlier today, and um, sometimes focusing on some tart foods if that's tolerated to help reset those taste buds. Um, eliminating um, some of the things that can give um, an off flavor are the utensils um, that we use to eat with. Sometimes switching from metal um, to a plastic can be helpful. Even the containers we drink out of um, can make a difference. Sometimes using a straw is helpful, um, just depending on what you're um, experiencing. So talking with your team about that and what's an appropriate intervention um, is a first, first step. Change in bowel function we heard a little bit earlier, and um, sometimes this can be a result of the side effect management medication you've been given to offset some of those um, chemotherapy or treatment side effects. Um, we heard earlier about changing up the type of fiber in your diet um, based on if you're having diarrhea or constipation, but you need to know what is the um, cause of the diarrhea and constipation before you just self-medicate um, that. So talking with your team is very important. Um, there are a lot of things that can cause um, changes in bowel function. The one thing we do um, encourage, though, is Either way, hydration is very, very important, and dehydration can result in a number of uncomfortable side effects. Um, we've heard some of them today, but um, getting in enough fluids, and a dietitian can work with you on helping identify foods that are considered fluids and how many fluids you need to take in a day. 
Um, they can also help you recognize fluids that are appropriate for electrolyte replacement. And um, oftentimes if you're a diabetic or you have some other concerns, helping you find the right product for you. Um, if you find that you're um, erratically having side effects, keep a log of what you're eating um, and how you're responding to those. That will help your team help develop a plan better suited for you. And um, again, just reminding all of you that maintaining um, the best nutritional status during your treatment can really impact um, your outcome with treatment. And we want to work as a team to um, have your, your, your journey and your outcome be as optimal as possible. So connect with your healthcare team and um, we're all here to support you. With that, I'm going to hand it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was really excellent and lots of excellent tips for everybody. Um, and um, our next speaker is Ms. Essie Roman. Ms. Roman is an oncology social worker. She's our Women's Clinic uh, Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Roman is going to address um, recommendations to handle hair loss and Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services. It's my pleasure now to turn the panel over to Ms. Roman. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for inviting me to speak today. I work with many patients at cancer care suffering the effects of chemotherapy. They affect you emotionally as well as physically. One of the many side effects is hair loss. Our hair defines us. We feel good when we look good. Losing one's hair is a visual reminder of what we are going through. It is traumatic to see your hair loss on your pillowcase, on the floor, or in the shower. Sometimes it falls out slowly or a handful at a time. It affects how we see ourselves every time we look in the mirror. We can feel embarrassed being seen out in public because of how we are seen. Nothing prepares you for that. Even when we try our best foot forward by obtaining a wig before the hair loss begins, it still affects you emotionally. There are options that are available to you, such as hats, scarves, wigs to help with that. Even with a wig, it takes time to become comfortable with the new you. At Cancer Care, we offer free wigs to patients receiving treatment in the regional area. The Look Good, Feel Better program through the American Cancer Society gives helpful hints on wearing makeup as well as instructions on how to care for your wig. For information on WIC services in your area, please check with your medical team at the hospital where you are receiving treatment for resources on receiving a wig or where you can purchase one. We have been talking about managing your care and quality of life, and I'd like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be part of your network. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, face-to-face -face in the New York area, and over the telephone nationally. Support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in New York and over the telephone nationally and online nationally and internationally. Education programs, practical help, assist, assistance navigating the, the healthcare system and some limited financial assistance, as well as chemo copay assistance. 
all our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer can affect a person and his or her family and friends. We are also trained to help cancer patients and their support tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact and care. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all of the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process. As you may know, cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group is a way of is a way to connect with others who are going through a similar situation or are experiencing similar problems. And in, an individual counseling provides a space that is just yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. At this time, Cancer Care offers an online support group, telephone support group, face-to-face support group. We also provide both patient and caregiver groups face-to-face in the New York area, on the phone nationally and online nationally and internationally. If you're interested in any of the cancer care services, please call our helpline at 1-800-813-HOPE to visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Our website is a very comprehensive and you can find a lot of information not only on support but on all of our programs as well as on on your cancer diagnosis, treatment, and ways of coping as you go through this. We have learned a lot from today's program, and there is a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Our social workers can help you understand what it, makes, what it means for you and your loved ones. Should you have any question about today's workshop or about our services, please don't hesitate to contact us. Lastly, Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer Care Services are here to help you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Roman. That was excellent. And now we have time for questions. And I'm going to ask um, Stephanie to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take some questions before we conclude the program today. Um, uh, Stephanie, could you explain how to queue up for questions? Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, to ask a question, please press star than one at this time. We have a question from one of our online participants, um, from Jonathan. Um, uh, so can anticipate can anticipatory nausea and vomiting be treated the same way as acute or delayed nausea and vomiting? Uh, Dr. Grala, could you address that? 
Right. Um, actually, no. Um, <clears throat> when a person has anticipatory nausea and vomiting, you still need to uh, treat the acute and, and delay that would come with the next cycle. But this is a conditioned reflex. And typically uh, what happens is a person starts to become anxious even days before. So there are two different approaches. One is behavior therapy which uh, can be arranged at many centers, uh, which um, uh, would take a few sessions to, uh, to work, and this has been shown to work well. And another way is to use drugs like uh, lorazepam, uh, Ativan, and uh, uh, this can be used, I usually start a few days early, and people find that they're more relaxed and that this has this approach has also been shown to be useful. So know when there's anticipatory emesis, it needs a special approach, and uh, your treatment team should be aware of this. Well, we have another question from one of our online participants from Eleanor. Um, what other types of medication can interfere with um, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting? So if someone's taking other medications um, for other health problems, um, Dr. Gala? Right. Well, it's a great question. There are many other medicines, I wouldn't say interfere, but they can cause nausea and vomiting in themselves. Uh, medicines that open the bronchial tubes, bronchodilators, some of them can cause it. Pain medications can. Uh, some antibiotics can. It's not that they interfere. It's that they uh, cause uh, nausea and vomiting themselves. And sometimes the cancer itself is causing the uh, nausea and uh, not the treatment. So the pattern around which nausea begins or vomiting begins should be a big hint to your doctor and nurses that, uh, whether this is due to the chemotherapy, due to the cancer, or due to other medications. So this is all part of the workup for a person who is not doing uh, as well as they should. And Dr. Kevin, do you want to comment also on just the role of the caregiver? Because it's often hard for people to keep track of all of their comorbid health problems when they're seeing, um, when, they're, when they're experiencing nausea and vomiting. Well, I, I think it's important uh, to use the, the my drug list and <clears throat> to actually make calendars uh, for all the um, medications and the different times. I, our patients find that to be the most interesting thing and the most helpful thing. Sometimes people buy all these devices, but the devices still don't tell you the different times that everything is to be taken and how to coordinate it. So having a calendar that the whole family uses for what is done every day, and even though the for nausea and vomiting these may be only three days out of a month or whatever, putting that on the month exactly when it occurs and so that the whole family can uh, see that and take advantage of that seems to work best. And Dr. Gall, I just want to comment on just what's new on the horizon in terms of um, the continuing development of, um, of, you know, management of nausea and vomiting, which um, certainly has been, there's been a lot of breakthroughs in terms of its management and other things that people just be very much aware of in terms of it's really working for them. Well, number one, uh, I did mention these newer drugs like rolapatent and NEPA that uh, are really 
were both approved in about the last year, and they provide a tremendous amount of, of convenience and ease of, of taking the NK1, which is so important in the major risks uh, of this. Uh, there are some forms of the uh, serotonin antagonists that are used as patches rather than pills uh, or injections, but the pills and injections work quite well. And there's an older medicine uh, that is making a comeback uh, called olanzapine, which is uh, uh, a tranquilizer type medicine that's been around for quite a while that clearly has anti-nausea activity that has uh, uh, gotten a lot of attention recently and the question is figuring out is this a drug that we should add as a fourth drug in certain patients or is it a drug for people who haven't done as well as they should be when getting uh, that when, when getting the, the best of agents. So there's a lot of work being done in this way uh, to try to um, uh, enhance the convenience of the drugs, uh, uh, to try to enhance the safety, which they're already very safe drugs, and limit the interactions, and then to even raise the uh, level of, of effectiveness. So um, there's a lot of work being done. Uh, in, in each and one of those uh, areas. Well, I want to thank all of the speakers today. You've been extraordinary. And I want to thank all of you who have actually asked questions um, online, very good online, excellent online questions as well. And I know that there are many other questions. So as we are about to conclude the program today, I don't want to um, not tell you what to do if you have further questions. So first of all, I want to get to that. I mentioned to all of you that if you didn't, we didn't get to answer all your questions that we, we could refer you. So if you have medically-based questions, any questions that are focused on your medical treatments or on, treating, on managing nausea and vomiting, further questions in that area or just on your cancer treatments as well, I would very much suggest that you call the National Cancer Institute at one 800 422-6237. Again, that's 1-800-422-6237. And the National Cancer Institute has information specialists that are waiting to answer your questions. However, if you wish to um, access the services from our oncology social workers at Cancer Care, which F.D. Roman talked about, all of the services that we offer here in terms of practical and financial assistance, like co-pay uh, assistance programs, um, counseling services, um, support groups, um, um, our workshops that we offer, um, these continuing with these workshops that we offer quite frequently. Um, uh, but for those, all those services, you would call the Cancer Care number at 1-800-813-4673 and speak with one of our oncology social workers. Most importantly, as we conclude today's program, I don't want anyone to think that they're alone in coping with um, managing chemotherapy side effects, um, treatment, nausea and vomiting side effects, or in coping with your cancer in, in any way. I want you to now know that you're part of the cancer care community and that we're here to help you and that we are simply a telephone call away and you also can visit our website at www.cancercare.org and you can talk to, you can um, post a question there for our staff to get back to you, for oncology social workers to get back to you. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.